Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we are going to talk about Jung Ha, and that has been requested by at least two listeners, Farah and Eric. Jung Ha led expeditionary voyages from China in the 15th century. And there are some people that claim that he made it to the Americas and Australia, and that he circumnavigated the globe, and that he solved a longitude problem, and that he found the city of Atlantis. Basically, that he was some kind of godlike maritime super genius. The historical record does not support any of that, but none of that embellishment is necessary at all because the whole story is extremely impressive already without any of those false things. Zheng He's expeditions were huge. The, the ships themselves were enormous, and they there were so many in the fleet that often the fleet's population was bigger than the ports that it was visiting. Plus, Zheng He himself is a really interesting character also. He served as a palace eunuch in the Ming Dynasty. So parents and teachers, if explaining what a eunuch is is not something you really feel like doing today, this is a good time to put this episode aside for a while. Zheng He was born Maha in what is now Yunnan province in southwestern China. He and his family were Muslims, and based on his father and grandfather both taking the name Haji, both likely made a pilgrimage to Mecca at some point. In 1381, Maha's father either died or was killed. And the same year, Maha, who at this point was about 10, was captured by the Ming army during its invasion of Yunnan. In 1385, when he was roughly 13, Maha was castrated. It was common for the Ming army to castrate the young sons of its captives, many of whom did not survive that process. It's not entirely clear why Maha wasn't castrated immediately when he was captured, or why he was roughly three years later. Regardless, after this castration, Maha was sent to serve in the household of the fourth son of Zhu Yuang Zhang, the Hongwu Emperor, as a palace eunuch. Eunuchs had become established as part of the Chinese court all the way back to the Han Dynasty, which was more than a thousand years before this point. However, the Hongwu Emperor just didn't trust them. By being assigned to Zhu Di, who was the emperor's son, Maha had a considerably bigger list of privileges, including more responsibilities and better access to education than he would have been serving elsewhere in the emperor's court. Even though he was still fairly young when he was castrated and probably hadn't entered and definitely would not have completed puberty, Maha wound up defying Chinese expectations of men who were castrated as children. Rather than remaining petite, with a high voice and typically feminine mannerisms and interests, he grew to be quite tall and quite broad, with a voice described as, quote, loud as a huge bell, and he developed an in-depth knowledge of warfare. He accompanied the prince, Judi, on multiple military expeditions. During these expeditions, Maha and Judi became friends, and it turned out that this friendship with the emperor's fourth son would serve Maha incredibly well in his later life. In 1392, the emperor's oldest son died. Typically, that son's eldest son, Zhu Yunwen, would have then been named crown prince. But the Hongwu emperor thought Zhu Di might be a more capable leader. This was an opinion that Zhu Di himself also shared. So it's not surprising that after his father died and the throne passed to Zhu Yunwen as normal, this power struggle uh 
played out and it turned into this outright civil war. Now, this could be an entire podcast and we're not going to get into the details because it's really outside the focus of what we're talking about today. But overwhelmingly, Judy overthrew his nephew and took the throne, something that he was able to do in part because of information he got from escaped court eunuchs about the layout of the city and how it was defended. Once he was on the throne, Judy named himself the Jungle Emperor, which means lasting joy. Maho's position became immensely more powerful. The Yongle Emperor renamed him as a gift, replacing his surname of Ma, which was a common surname among Chinese Muslims, with the more prestigious surname Jung. The new emperor also gave the eunuchs who had helped him in this rebellion far more power than previous emperors had been comfortable bestowing upon eunuchs. This actually set up an ongoing power struggle between the eunuchs and Confucian advisors at court, the latter of whom were far more conservative and generally opposed to outward expansion and exploration from China. In 1403, the Yongle Emperor ordered the construction of the largest fleet of ships in China's history to undertake a huge trading expedition through the China Seas and the Indian Ocean. And its commander was to be Zheng He. This was the first time in Chinese history that a eunuch had been placed in such an important military role. We're going to talk more about the fleet uh, that Zheng He commanded, but first, we're going to have a brief sponsor break. common misperception about Chinese history is that the nation has, for most of that history, been extremely, almost obsessively isolationist, with the only real form of trade being the Silk Road. That is, to put extremely simply, false. While China has, at various points, definitely taken a much more isolationist view of the world, it has also undertaken periods of exploration and trade over great distances throughout most of its history. This maritime tradition started with canoes and sailing rafts thousands of years ago. By 1132, during the Song Dynasty, the emperor established China's first official permanent navy. And within a century, the navy boasted about 600 ships and 52,000 conscripted men. And from the 12th to 15th centuries, the nation continually refined its tools and methods for shipbuilding, naval warfare, and navigation. The Yongle Emperor's treasure fleet simply would not have been possible without all these centuries of nautical experience. The treasure fleet was much, much too big and too complex to basically be the product of a nation's first ever attempt at building a boat and helming an expedition across a long distance. By 1407, China had either built or refit 1,681 ships for the treasure fleet Emperor Judi had ordered. This required a huge increase in China's lumber industry, with timber being farmed inland and floated down rivers to the coast. Craftsmen and laborers, along with their families, were transferred to the coast as well, with hundreds of households relocating to work in the shipyards. Among the ships built in these ship shipyards were enormous junks that were built specifically for sea travel. These were called baochuan, or treasure boats, or longchan, which was dragon boats. They combined aspects of two existing ships. One of these ships was a flat-bottom junk that had been made to travel the relatively shallow Yellow Sea, where the biggest threat was running into ever-shifting sandbars. So these were uh, ships that, that sort of rode high in the water and their bottoms were really flat. The other was a four-decked ship that had been made for sea travel. This one has a much deeper and very pointed keel and very wide decks and a strong prow that was suitable for ramming things. Ramming things was one of the Chinese Navy's uh, favorite ways of attacking a def- another ship. 
The treasure ships, masts, and rigging were like the sandboats of the Yellow Sea to catch the most wind, and their hulls were more like the existing ocean ships to stay upright in rough seas. The treasure ships were enormous. Exact dimensions have been tricky to calculate because the units of measure that were being used at the time weren't exactly standardized. But the general consensus is that the biggest dragon ships were between 390 and 408 feet long and 160 to 166 feet wide. So that's roughly 120 meters long and 50 meters wide. That is a lot of ship. That's multiple ships, like multiple of Christopher Columbus's ships could have fit into one of these. Uh, like, I think Christopher Columbus's entire all of them, all of them could have gone here. It's like a small cruise voyage. ship. Yeah, it's a, gigantic. These ships used ballast, rudders, anchors, and holes that would partially fill up with water during rough seas to make them more stable. They also had nine staggered masts that bore 12 square sails that would catch the wind. They were armed with cannons, although they weren't really meant as fighting ships. Their defense was really the work of warships that were also part of the armada. In addition to huge cargo areas for carrying treasure from and back to China, there were also luxurious accommodations on board meant to carry both Chinese envoys and envoys that went back to China from other nations. And you could say the ships themselves were luxurious as well. The sails were made from red silk, and the bodies were extensively carved and painted with things like dragons and phoenixes. They looked really dramatic on the water. The treasure ship's cargo basically included the best that China had to offer, including porcelains, silks, tapestries, cotton, lacquerware, art, hemp, oils, and candles. They were hoping to trade for things like ivory, tortoiseshell, incense, pearls, precious stones, woods that were either rare or couldn't be obtained in China, and substances that were used as medicine like sulfur, rhinoceros horn, deer antler, incense, and aromatic herbs and spices. In addition to the treasure ships, these fleets also included warships and patrol boats, horse ships that carried horses, both for trade and for the cavalry, water tankers, and completely separate supply ships. Communicating across this immense armada in a day when there was no radio or... Just text them. Right. (laughs) (laughs) This required uh, flags and lanterns to make visual signals from one ship to another, loud drums to warn the fleet of incoming storms really quickly, gongs and bells to sound signals aboard each ship, and then carrier pigeons for long distances across the fleet. Stars and instruments were used to measure latitude. Time was kept on board via graduated incense sticks, which I love that idea. That's how I'm going to keep time from now on. So if yeah. I run a little late, I'm adjusting. Instead of that hourglass on your on your desk, yeah. we will we will burn graduated incense sticks. The speed was measured by throwing an object overboard and then following it as the ship passed it using a chant to measure out the pace, sort of like a more poetic version of counting one Mississippi to Mississippi to count how many seconds have passed since that lightning happened. I'm still back on the drums wondering if drum noise would ever get confused with thunder. That's a good question. But I, would, I imagine they could recognize the difference. I would probably the drum beats being used were distinctive enough yeah. not to sound quite as muddled as thunder usually does. I would think. I'm just thinking about sound carrying across water, but yeah, 
This might be a good experiment. Let's go on a boat trip. Okay. Uh, it took as many as 28,000 people to crew a fleet of this size. So, again, massive. Aboard were soldiers, sailors, astrologers, and geomancers, translators, medical officers, envoys, and a number of government ministers to oversee operations. Most of the rank-and-file soldiers and sailors were criminals who had been banished and sentenced to the work. The emperor's eunuchs commanded the entire operation. There were seven directors, ten assistant directors, and 52 others whose ranks were not specified. And then, of course, there was Zheng He, the commander-in-chief. In addition to acting as ambassadors and imperial representatives, the eunuchs basically supervised the military activity aboard. Zheng He traveled with all but the second of these seven voyages. That one he skipped to see to see to other tasks in China. And we're going to talk about what happened during these voyages. But first, we will pause once again for a brief word from a sponsor. To return to the expedition. From 1405 until 1433, China sent massive fleets of treasure ships and all these other ships on seven different voyages. Strictly speaking, they were not voyages of exploration. The trade routes that they were following had already been established, many of them from the opposite direction by traders and explorers who had been headed to China. This includes Ibn Battuta of Morocco, who sailed to China along with many, 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 many other places about a 100 years before. The first three fleets set sail in 1405, 1407, and 1409. And if you can do the math, you would judge that they lasted about two years apiece. They traveled from Nanjing on the eastern coast of China to Koshikod, then known as Calicut, on the western coast of India, with stops along the way at various ports in southeastern Asia, Indonesia, and Sri Lanka, then known, of course, as Ceylon, along with other ports in India. Each of these first three voyages had really similar goals. They reestablished trading and diplomatic relationships that the Hongwu Emperor had previously pretty much shut down. They reinforced these relationships with each subsequent visit, including setting the expectation that tributes be paid to the Emperor. The fleet would pick up ambassadors, or the ambassadors would travel to China separately, bearing that tribute. Ambassadors then returned home either on subsequent voyages of the treasure fleet or by other means. The voyages were also meant to help ensure peace in the region. The first and largest fleet, with its 317 ships, was particularly important in this regard. It defeated a pirate known as Chen Zuyi, who had been plundering ships in the Strait of Malacca, which connects the Indian Ocean and the South China Sea. The first armada captured seven of his ships, and they burned ten others. And with Chen Zuyi out of the way, subsequent expeditions sailed with far fewer ships. During the third voyage, China recognized Malacca as a sovereign nation, putting it on equal diplomatic footing with its neighbors and making it less likely that those neighbors would try to conquer it, since if they did, that would anger the Chinese and its obviously vast navy. On this and other voyages, Zheng He also erected stone tablets, which documented the voyages and offered thanks to multiple deities in multiple languages. This is actually one of the ways that we know where he went and when. Not all of China's peacemaking efforts were as cut and dried as ousting a pirate or recognizing a nation's sovereignty, though. The third voyage's stop in Sri Lanka, then known as Ceylon, as we mentioned earlier, met with some trouble. 
And the Chinese and local accounts of what happened vary really drastically. According to local history, the Chinese stole a relic believed to be one of the Buddha's teeth and kidnapped local leaders. The Chinese perspective was that it stopped warring among the nation's three factions and relieved it of someone who was trying to usurp the genuine rulers. Now, regardless of how it actually played out, the emperor wound up claiming sovereignty over Ceylon and demanding that its rulers pay tribute to him. Yes, consensus is that it was probably a little of both (laughs) as far as what actually happened. It sounds like one of those instances of cultural tone deafness where someone goes, I can solve this problem. I will just remove this obstacle. But that obstacle is a really important thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's. This is the one of the cases, like a lot of people who talk about these expeditions are like, this is an entirely peaceful thing. Not really. Like, you don't travel with a gigantic fleet of warships on an entirely We're peaceful chill. mission. <laughs> where then you also have something like this play out that obviously was was somewhat violent and uh, and not really appreciated by the local population. China's fourth expedition, ordered in 1412 and launched in 1414, went a lot farther than the first three, with the emperor wanting to reach the port of Hormuz in the mouth of the Persian Gulf. There, they traded for precious gems, corals, pearls, and carpets. Hormuz and the neighboring city-states also, like the ports that had been visited on the prior expeditions, sent emissaries and tributes back with the fleet. These tributes included animals as well, including lions, leopards, and horses. Other emissaries that made their way back to China by other means also brought giraffes, which has become one of the really famous things that came back as tribute. One eunuch that was leading another expedition actually mistook the giraffe for a a mythical sacred Chinese animal known as the Qilin. The next two expeditions led by Zheng He, which departed in 1417 and 1421, stretched farther still, all the way to the western coast of Africa, once again to trade and return with emissaries to the emperor. Each one also returned emissaries who had come to China on or after the one before. And these once again followed the same routes as earlier expeditions, visiting many of the same ports before continuing on to what is now Oman, Yemen, Somalia, Kenya, and Tanzania. For reasons that aren't entirely clear, Zheng Ha himself returned from the sixth voyage nearly a year before the rest of the fleet did. It was possibly to take part in the ceremony for the completion of the new Forbidden City. In the years between Zheng He's return from the sixth voyage and his departure on the last and seventh one in 1431, after a much longer gap than any of the previous expeditions, the emperor started to experience a number of problems. A scandal involving courtesans having intimate relations with a eunuch swept the court. His favorite concubine also died. The emperor himself was hurt in a hunting accident. And on May 9th of 1421, the brand new Forbidden City was struck by lightning and heavily damaged in the fire that followed that strike. The nation began to experience financial problems brought about by everything from epidemics to military struggles with neighboring nations to the strain on the lumber industry for the wood needed to repair the Forbidden City. The Yongle Emperor Judy died on August 12th, 1424. Zheng He was away on a separate, smaller voyage unrelated to these huge treasure voyages when the emperor died. He didn't actually return home until after the emperor's son, Zhu Gaozhi, the Hongxi emperor, was on the throne. Zhu Gaozhi's first edict was that all the treasure voyages were to be stopped. 
No new ships would be built. No existing ships would be repaired. He returned to Confucian ideals that put the focus on the world within China's borders, not outside of it. But after just nine months in power, Zhu Gaozhi died. Following him was his son, Zhu Zhangji, the Shuangde Emperor. Uh, and when he became emperor, he rolled back a lot of his father's more conservative direct- directives. Zhu Zhangji ordered another expedition, and it seems it was clear from the outset that it would be the last one. It was at least as large and possibly larger than the first had been. Before leaving, Zheng He documented the achievements of his previous voyages on a pair of stone tablets, purportedly as thanks to the patron goddess of sailors, but possibly also to make sure some evidence of the voyages survived that presented them in a positive light, since they were now well out of favor at court. The seventh and last fleet collected cargo and crew along the Chinese coast until January 12, 1432. It arrived in Calicut on December 10th of that year. From there, the fleet actually separated into smaller groups that followed different routes. On the Arabian Peninsula, a caravan from the fleet traveled to and from Mecca, although it appears that Zheng He himself did not, due to his poor health at the time. The fleet later reconvened at Calicut and returned to China. Somewhere along the way, Zheng He, by then in his 60s, died and was buried at sea. After this last voyage, emissaries from other nations gra- gradually slowed down in being sent to China. After a while, smugglers, instead of giant fleets of, of traders and ships, became the primary means for foreign goods to get into China. The size of the Ming Navy got smaller and smaller as China's military focus turned to land-based defense in- against increasingly aggressive neighbors. One reason why people have invented a much-inflated account of Zheng He's already extremely noteworthy voyages was that in 1477, his logs and documents were lost, possibly deliberately destroyed in ongoing struggles between Confucians and imperial eunuchs, who, as we mentioned earlier, had vastly different worldviews, vastly different opinions on how these voyages had gone. Until archaeological excavations of the shipyards began in far more recent history, most of the documentation we had existed in the form of items that had been traded during the voyages, as well as histories of other nations that the Chinese had visited and the stone tablets that Zheng He himself had erected. In the late 15th and early 16th centuries, Europe took China's place as the world's greatest maritime power, albeit with much, much smaller ships that traveled in much smaller fleets than what China was using. However, according to the lore, the nations where their their expeditions overlapped with where China had gone during Zheng He's voyages weren't exactly impressed by the goods that the Europeans brought to trade. When Vasco da Gama landed in eastern Africa in 1498, the Africans who met him basically thought that Portugal's goods were trinkets compared to China's. I kind of the whole image of that cracks me up. Like <laughs> it had been at this point 60 or 80 years between the last time that China was there uh, and when folks from Portugal should, showed up. And I'm, I'm sort of imagining people like, okay, what is this? <laughs> we had silk and beautiful lacquer before, and now we have this, like, basin that you want to trade. <laughs> there is a replica of one of Zheng He's ships that was built, built for the Zheng He Treasure Boat Factory Ruins Park in Nanjing. A second project was meant to build one that could actually sail and to recreate one of his voyages. That multi-million dollar project was expected to launch in 2008. It has clearly been a little while since then. 
Uh, that project has been plagued by delays and is apparently now on hold. Yeah, I tried to find a definitive answer to what actually had happened. And I uh, could not find anything particularly recent about it, other than that, you know, there was definitely a replica that was built for the museum that there are plenty of pictures of and that people launched. But this one that was actually meant to t- undertake a replica voyage is apparently just sort of... What's the status, Glenn? Don't know. We don't know. Uh, if you want to learn more about this, um, there's a book called When China Ruled the Seas, The Treasure Fleet of the Dragon Flo- Dragon Flown. Dragon Throne, 1405 to 1433, which is from Oxford University Press, which I really, really liked. One of the things I've started doing when I am trying to make sure that I have good sources for things is that I will read the reviews in academic journals of books that have been published in academic presses. And all of the reviews of this are like, for people who are new to this, it's a great introduction. If you are already an expert, it contains nothing new. And I was like, that's perfect. Yes. That's exactly what I'm looking for. So uh that is, again, called When China Ruled the Seas. It's really quite good and very accessible. Do you also have listener mail, dear Tracy? I do. My listener mail is from Manda. Uh, and I'm not going to read all of it because um, it is a it is a more lengthy mail. Um, and this is actually actually about an episode that Holly did the research on. And Manda says, Holly and Tracy, I cannot even begin to tell you the absolute joy that filled me when I saw the podcast title today, Knitting's Early History. I've been an avid knitter for the last three and a half years, teaching myself entirely on YouTube. I'm not afraid to try any new technique, and I've never shied away from a pattern. I have, I even had a local yarn shop owner tell me the advanced project I had taken on within a year of learning to knit made me a masochist. I was completely enthralled through the entire podcast, but especially at the end when I learned I am a Yorkshire Dale. I have a knitting bag that I carry around with me at waist level. I knit while I walk, travel, play games with friends, attend trainings while I work, basically wherever, whenever I will knit. This began because I have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder that was diagnosed as an adult. I always doodled in classes while I was getting my associate's degree, but it wasn't enough to keep me super focused on what I was supposed to be learning like I wanted. I decided that I needed to find something to do with my hands to keep me focused and tried crochet. That did not work for me. So then I thought maybe knitting would be better. Knitting was the perfect activity for me. And then she goes on to talk about attributing many, many awesome, awesome life successes to being able to focus through knitting, which I thought was extremely awesome. Um, and then she goes on with the side note that is actually the thing that made me want to, to, to be the one to read this. Uh, she says, Tracy, congratulations on your upcoming wedding. I hope it's everything you dreamed of and more on the knitting podcast. I thought of emailing you to say, make a gauge, but then I th- thought, don't do that. Everyone will tell her to knit a gauge. Then you said, I know I could make a gauge, but I'm lazy. I literally laughed out loud because I used to be the exact same, exact same way until the sweater. Dun, dun, dun. I decided as a gift to myself for all my hard work getting into the one-year master's program, I was going to knit myself a sweater. It was complicated. Hundreds of cables. I had to learn a lot of new techniques to make it. It took me months because the pattern was so difficult. And then when it was done, it didn't fit. Now I knit a swatch, wash it, dry it, and block it every single time. It was definitely a facepalm moment, and I didn't get to wear a graduation like I'd planned because I didn't knit a gauge uh, and then she goes on to say another couple things and says, thanks again, Manda. You're looking at me like you have a thought. Well, because I realized while listening to you read that letter that she hit upon one of the other reasons I'm not a knitter. 
Oh, yeah? I can fix any size problem on a garment. Yeah. I can add or subtract. I've gotten pretty artful at putting in panels that blend, but knitting, I would be so angry if that happened. Yeah. Well, so many, many, many people, thank you for your advice, have written in to say that I should have blocked my shawl. That was definitely not the problem. <laughs> uh, it was a doll shawl. It, yeah, like it was perfect and beautiful and so, so tiny. I had definitely been knitting much too tightly for what the pattern called for, which would have been prevented if I had done a gauge swatch first, which I did not do. So while uh, I, I appreciate everyone in th- everyone's enthusiasm about blocking, uh, that that was not the problem. Uh, and no one else needs to suggest that I block my shawl because I also don't have it anymore. That was years ago and I have moved 900 miles since then. <laughs> so thank you again, Manda. Thank you to everyone who has written in about, um, about blocking and other tips for that project's gone. It's, it cannot be salvaged now. <laughs> Adios, muchacho. It's super gone. Uh, we also had a couple of folks who wrote in to, uh, talk about how um, they do various different crafts and sewing work and et cetera, and are also blind. Uh, yeah. After, after we had talked about how it's, uh, how I think it's easier to knit in the dark than to maybe do other things in the dark. So thank you to all you folks who have written in. Yeah. Uh, Cause I had not really thought about that. Um, obviously if you do not have sight, you can still do the same things. Yeah. Which, I think, I think for, um, for me and probably anyone, that is cited is so hard to make that leap of like, how on earth would you figure it out? But you do. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you're a sighted person, it is probably easier, uh, with like something that's big and tactile. Like exactly. Knitting, than something that is, uh, like it would be harder for me personally as a sighted person to like figure out where I had sewn my seams, uh, in a, in a delicately sewn garment than with, my big chunky woolly knit yeah. <laughs> uh, knit stuff. So thank you. Um, we have heard from, uh, I think, knitters and crocheters and sculptors and seamstresses. Yeah. Uh, which was awesome. So thank you so much, everyone, for writing in. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. I'm getting sing-songy with this today. Yay! Uh, if you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. Put whatever you're looking for in the search bar. We've got all kinds of information. Then you can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, where we will have show notes for today's episode that will include uh, everything about that book that I mentioned at the end. We also have an archive of everything we have ever done. Lots of cool stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com or mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 